Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6, I've been preaching through the book of Joshua. We've come to this very well-known story in chapter 6. And so let's begin by reading the whole chapter together. And remember as we read, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, The seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing 
for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Amen. That's the reading of God's word, and let me pray and ask his blessing upon it now. Our Heavenly Father, we listen to you speaking to us in your word. We recognize and acknowledge that all scripture is breathed out by God. So we humble ourselves before its authority as from you, our God and King. And we pray that you would nurture our souls spiritually with your word. It is our spiritual food and drink. Help us to grow. And most of all, O God, help us to know you as you have revealed yourself in your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the centuries, the church has at times engaged in physical warfare with physical armies in order to gain political control over physical territories. Now this, of course, was woefully misguided. Because we remember that Jesus himself said his kingdom is not of this world. This is why Jesus rebuked Peter and told him to put away his sword when he intended to use it to fight off those who had come to arrest Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. However, as you know, The New Testament does use the language of warfare to describe the activity of the church in the world. He's described as having, Christ is described as having triumphed over the devil through the cross. 
Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven as his disciples went out preaching the gospel and casting out demons. Christ also described the building of his church in sort of military language. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Indeed, the Apostle Paul described his own ministry of gospel preaching and teaching in the church as involving a kind of warfare. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And of course, we all know how in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and following, Paul described really the entire Christian life as a spiritual battle against spiritual enemies. Do you remember how he said in verse 11, for instance, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I think it is important to think of the activity of the church and of believers like you and me in the world as spiritual warfare. Why? Because it reminds us of an important truth about our lives as Christians. It reminds us that our Christian lives are going to involve a difficult and potentially deadly struggle or fight. Think of how Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I always, when I read that verse, I have these images that flash into my mind of, you know, William Wallace and Braveheart just wielding this sword. That's the idea. If you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So in order to survive the Christian life spiritually, we must wage war. We must wage war against the devil and his demons, against the influence of the man-made system of this world which is under the influence of the devil, and against our own sinful nature, which lurks like an ally of the devil within our own hearts. Now, when you put it like this, the Christian life is a terrifying prospect. And we might ask how we can ever be expected to make it through. How can we fend off the cunning lies of the devil and hold on to the faith once for all delivered to the saints? How can we swim against the seductive currents of this world system and keep from compromising our Christian convictions? How can we resist those powerful passions of our own sinful nature and present our bodies to the Lord? to be instruments of righteousness instead? How can we possibly emerge victorious in a war like this where we are so badly outmatched? Well, I actually think that is in one sense what Joshua 6 is all about. Let me show you what I mean. 
And in order to do this, I want to begin by walking through this really familiar story together again. And then I'll talk about what its message is and how it speaks to us as Christians today. So let's walk through this familiar story of Joshua 6. Now, Joshua 6, 1, just by way of introduction, as we come to Joshua 6 and you hit that first verse, you have to realize that you're hitting a major seam, a major turning point in the book of Joshua. At the beginning of this series, I explained how the book of Joshua really, first of all, breaks down into two halves. The first half of the book, Joshua 1 through 12, are all about Israel conquering the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership. And then chapters 13 through 24, the second half of the book, are all about how Israel divided up the land of Canaan amongst themselves under Joshua's leadership. Now then I pointed out how if you take that first half of the book, that too can be divided in half. So chapters 1 through 5, are all about Israel crossing over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. And chapters 6 through 12 are all about Israel then taking possession of the land of Canaan. So, you see, Joshua 6.1 marks the transition between these two halves of the first section of the book. The crossing is completed. Now the conquest begins. And whereas the book describes most of Israel's conquest. When you read through Joshua, most of the conquest of Canaan is described in very large chunks. But you notice that an entire chapter is devoted to the first city that they defeated, named Jericho. Now, the reason isn't because Jericho was a particularly large or significant city in Canaan, I don't think. It was a fortified city. That means it had a wall around it rather than being just some small unwalled village. And its location was somewhat strategic. It sort of sat there, if you're coming into Canaan from the east, at the opening to the Jordan River Valley, probably to fortify and protect that entrance into such a large part of the country. And it also had the advantage of being well-supplied by a natural spring, so that it actually was a sort of oasis in an otherwise arid region. In fact, in the book of Judges, I believe, it's actually called the City of Palms. But the fact that Israel could march around this city seven times in one day meant that this was no, you know, Nineveh, a great capital-like city. It was a rather small city, probably, compared to others in Canaan. In fact, some people think it might have even been more like what we would call a fort, and with a significant military presence and perhaps a relatively small number of inhabitants. We can't be too sure on that, but it's a possibility. The reason, therefore, the book of Joshua devotes an entire chapter in, to Israel's defeat of Jericho is because, not because this was some very significant city, but because it was the first city they conquered. And as the first city they conquered, it was going to set the tone for the rest of the conquest. In this first victory, the Lord taught the nation how to understand 
and approach the conquest going forward. Now, the first verse of the chapter establishes the difficulty that Israel faced when they approached this city from a human perspective. So it says, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now, back in chapter 5, verse 1, we were told that the inhabitants of the city had heard about Israel's miraculous crossing over the Jordan River. And it said their hearts melted with fear. And now we see what they did about it. They holed up inside their walled city and completely locked the place down. Now, that presented Israel with a challenge, didn't it? They could either launch an assault upon a well-fortified city, which would usually require taking very heavy casualties, especially for an army like Israel, which really wasn't used to that type of warfare. The other option, of course, was to lay siege to the city and wait until they ran out of food and eventually fell, which could take a year or more, especially for a city like Jericho, which had this internal water supply to it. So from a human perspective, you see, taking Jericho, when you read verse 1, you think, this is not going to be easy for the armies of Israel. But of course, the readers know that the army of Israel was not attacking the city of Jericho alone. Because you remember in the verses just leading up to this section, chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, we read about how the commander of the army of the Lord, who turned out to be Yahweh himself, appeared to Joshua with his sword drawn, and he said, I have come. Which meant that he and the armies of heaven had come to fight on behalf of Israel. So as we read in chapter 6, verse 1, about how Jericho was shut up tight, we've already been led to expect that somehow what would have posed a significant challenge for the armies of Israel wouldn't be a problem at all for the Lord of hosts. It's not surprising then to see actually that the Lord himself took the initiative to give Joshua the orders of how to proceed with the attack upon Jericho. You see it right there in verses 2 through 5. Let's look at those orders again. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Joshua, See, I have handed Jericho over to you, along with its king and soldiers. You shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for six days with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horns, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and all the people shall charge straight ahead. Now, of course, we're used to this story, aren't we? But when you first read it, without all the preconceptions that we have, what is striking about these orders is that they aren't concerned at all with military strategy. Indeed, they actually seem concerned to minimize any fighting on Israel's part. 
Israel was essentially sidelined until after Jericho was overthrown, at which point they were sent in to mop up. The Lord's primary concern in these orders that he gave to Joshua was to demonstrate that this victory over Jericho would be accomplished by his power. See, I have handed Jericho over to you. Perhaps nowhere is this more evident than the fact that the Ark of the Covenant, which of course represented the very presence of Yahweh, his throne, as it were, as he was often described as being enthroned between the cherubim that overshadowed the Ark, that the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of the Lord, was to be carried around the city with priests walking in front, drawing attention to its presence with loud trumpet blasts. In fact, it's interesting that repeated use of sevens, seven priests, seven trumpets, seven days, seven circuits around the city. That further emphasized this point because the number seven was often used with reference to God in Scripture. It seemed to point to his completion, his perfection of his person and of his work. So yes, the armies of Israel were to march in front and behind this mobile throne, as it were, of Yahweh, their God. But that's all they did was march and at the very end, shout. Now, the point of all this pageantry, I think, was to show that Yahweh, the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, was with Israel, dwelling in their midst, really as their king, and leading their armies into battle in this conquest. So when the walls of Jericho fell at the mere shout of his people, it was supposed to be clear both to Israelites and to Canaanites, that it was Yahweh who had done it by his almighty power. A familiar way to put it is that the battle belonged to the Lord. He would give his people the victory. As the Lord himself put it there in verse 2, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Now, the next 10 verses in the chapter... So verses 6 all the way through 16, these verses are dedicated to showing primarily that Israel carried out the orders that God had given to them in verses 2 through 5. So verses 6 and 7, Joshua, he's received these instructions from the Lord in verses 2 through 5, and he turns around and he relays them to the people. Then in verses 8 through 16, the people carried these orders out under Joshua's leadership. So first, in verses 8-11, through 11, the army of Israel marched around the city of Jericho one time with the priests carrying the ark of the Lord in their midst and blowing trumpets before him, just as the Lord commanded. And then in verses 12-14, through 14, uh, they woke up and did the same thing on the second day. And at the very end of verse 14, you see that little note, so they did for six days. So finally, in verses 15 and 16, they march around the city seven times on the seventh day, just as the Lord had instructed. So the point of all of this, however unorthodox it might have seemed to them, 
However foolish they might have felt doing so, the Israelites, under Joshua's leadership, faithfully carried out the instructions, the orders of their true commander, Yahweh himself, for how to defeat this first city of Jericho. We might notice that Israel showed their faith in the Lord by obeying his commands in these verses. And while it was the Lord, not Israel, who overthrew this city of Jericho by his power, yet he only did so when the Israelites demonstrated their faith in him by carrying out his word. So God, in one sense, acted in response to the faith-fueled obedience of his people. As the writer of Hebrews observed, you remember how he commented on this passage in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, he said, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Well, in one sense, it was by the Lord's power, but the means through which God worked was the faith-fueled obedience of his people. And one might presume that if they had not trusted him, and they had refused to carry out what may have seemed to them like silly instructions, then he wouldn't have acted to overthrow Jericho on their behalf. Not that he couldn't have done so without their marching, but that he wouldn't have done so without their obedience. So while the Lord accomplished the victory by his power, yet he chose to use the trust and obedience of his people as a necessary means to that end. By the end of verse 16, all that remained was for the people to shout as the Lord commanded and to go up and to take the city when the Lord caused its walls to crumble. But before they did that, you see that Joshua issued some further instructions there in verses 16 through 19. He said, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Now, here in these verses, I think we're reminded of two important things. First, we're reminded that the conquest of Canaan, beginning with Jericho, was not solely about God giving the land to Israel in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. Well, it was about that in one sense, but the conquest of Canaan was also about God executing his judgment upon the Canaanites for their sin. That's why Joshua charged the Israelites to devote this city to destruction and everything in it. In fact, that Hebrew word that's translated four times in those verses, we see it. 
It's translated in different ways, but four times we see it lying behind the English text. It's translated devoted or devoted to destruction or a thing for destruction. And the Hebrew word is harem. Now that actually referred to a practice in the ancient world that was commonly used, not just in the biblical text. And it was used to refer to the practice of completely destroying an entire group of people with all their possessions. It would sometimes be translated to be put under the ban. Because the idea was that it involved banning anything from being spared. In some cases, such as here in Joshua 6, there was a religious connotation to this practice of harem. The city of Jericho, including everyone and everything in it, was set apart for the Lord. It was devoted to the Lord. It was designated for complete destruction in order to satisfy the demands of his righteous wrath against their sin. So, you see, to spare any person or to take any plunder from the city would be for Israel to take what belonged to God. And to contravene his just judgment. Hence, Joshua's warning. You see it there in verse 18. That if Israel took any plunder from the city, they would become themselves harem. That is, a thing devoted to destruction. It's a sober warning, isn't it? In fact, it leads you into the next chapter, doesn't it? In which we see that Achan actually did take something for himself from the city. And we'll talk about that next time. Second, though, we are also reminded that there was one Canaanite family. The family of Rahab, the prostitute, who was to be spared when the Lord gave the city of Jericho into the hands of Israel to devote it to destruction. And it wasn't because she out of all the Canaanites, was somehow more worthy. Indeed, you see that the author goes out of his way every time to mention that she was a prostitute. In other words, she was a sexually immoral woman. But the Lord spared her from his judgment. Why? Well, we know because we read the story back in chapter 2. It was because she had believed in Yahweh. She had put her trust in the God of Israel to save her just out of his grace. As we saw back in chapter 2, she showed this faith by helping these two Israelite spies when they came to the city, by helping them escape from her own people, even though they were there to spy out the land to destroy her people. In other words... Just as the Lord had saved Noah from perishing when his judgment came upon the world at the flood. Just as he had saved Lot from perishing when his judgment came upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So now, God saved Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, from perishing in his judgment upon Jericho. 
And it was just an act of free favor, which he did when she put her trust in him. It was, in other words, salvation by grace through faith. We remember how the writer of Hebrews also observed and commented upon this fact when he looked back upon this story. In Hebrews 11, verse 31, he said, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. Now, these two points, which we have observed from Joshua's instructions to Israel there in verses 16 through 19 of our text, I believe they provide us with a clear foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's not just the inhabitants of Jericho, but all mankind that are under God's righteous wrath for their sin and one day will be devoted to destruction. You remember how Paul described this in Romans 1.18. He said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And just as God overthrew Jericho in his righteous judgment upon them for their sin, well, so a day is coming, a great day of judgment, when God will execute his judgment upon all mankind. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans as well. Romans 2, 5 through 6, he talks about the coming of a, quote, day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, for he will repay according to each one's deeds. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of good news that God has provided a a way for sinners like Rahab, like you and me, to be saved from perishing in God's judgment which is coming upon the world in the last day. And Paul talks about this in Romans 2. Romans 1.16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, of this message of good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the gospel tells us incredible news that God, out of his great mercy, out of his great compassion upon sinners, has sent the eternal person of the Son into the world As a man, he was God and he became man, Jesus Christ. And he came into the world to satisfy the demands of God's justice and to turn his wrath away from every sinner who, like Rahab, will simply believe in him. How did he do this? By, in love, offering himself up as an atoning sacrifice to pay for the sins of those who believe in him. You remember how Paul described this in Romans 2, didn't he? Romans 3, 23-25, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Indeed, one might even say that it was actually because of Christ's propitiatory or atoning sacrifice upon the cross that God 
could spare Rahab from punishment in Joshua 6. As Paul went on to say in the rest of Romans 3.25, Christ's atoning sacrifice showed how God could be righteous or just when in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. In other words, God could pass over the sins of people like Rahab and Noah and Lot and David in times past because he knew that Christ was going to pay the penalty for them through his death upon the cross. And this gift of salvation, this gift of justification, of forgiveness of sins and peace with God, is, as Paul put it in Romans 3.35, so every sinner here who has not yet done so, I would proclaim to you the gospel message that if you will simply believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as the Savior of the world, if you will, like Rahab did, put your faith in Him to save you through His death for your sins, then He, who has now risen from the dead in victory, will mercifully spare you from the judgment that you deserve, just as He did for Rahab. Well, after issuing these instructions to Israel, verses 16 through 19, getting back to the story, we see how Israel carried them out. Verses 20 through 25, the people shouted, and the Lord caused the walls of Jericho to fall down. Commentators have pointed out that there isn't really a battle of Jericho. It's, It's verse 20, it's just very simple. Walls fell down, they went in and took the city. The people went in, and they devoted the entire city to destruction, just as Joshua had commanded in verse 21. I want to pause here. I want to remind you of the fact that I actually preached a whole sermon in the beginning of this series called, Did God Commit Genocide? Understanding the Destruction of the Canaanites. And in that sermon, I tried to help you understand how God was perfectly just in ordering Israel to do this. I encourage you to go back, listen to that sermon. It's available on our website. If you just click on the sermons and you scroll down, you'll see it. Because I'm not going to go over all that material again here. But I realize some of you might be struggling with the words of the text about how they destroyed men, women, young and old, and even their livestock. It's a tough issue, but go back and listen to that sermon. Next, we see that the two spies from chapter 2 went into the city and brought Rahab and her family out to safety, verses 22 through 25. And then finally, we see that the chapter ends with Joshua pronouncing a curse in verse 26. You see it there, it says, Joshua then pronounced this oath, saying, Cursed before the Lord be anyone who tries to build this city, this Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest, he shall set up its gates. Now, the idea behind this curse seems to be that Jericho's ruins were to remain, as one commentator put it, as a perpetual memorial of what happens to those who engage in the sins of the Canaanites. And this wasn't just Joshua's idea. It wasn't like, you know what? 
I think I might put a curse in this place. No. In fact, it's interesting that centuries later, in another book of the Bible, 1 Kings, in the days of King Ahab, during his reign, when Elijah and Elisha were roaming the land, we're told about a man named Hiel of Bethel who came under Joshua's curse. There it says, In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. You know, there we see that the Lord enforced Joshua's curse long after Joshua had died. Why? Because the curse was actually, as the text says, the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua. So it wasn't just Joshua. It was the Lord who wanted Jericho's ruins to remain a perpetual monument to his judgment upon sin. Incidentally, it's instructive to us, isn't it, that God upheld his word even centuries after it was spoken through Joshua. You know, this is a reminder of that principle that's articulated so well in Peter's quotation of Isaiah 40 in 1 Peter 1, 24-25, where he says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You know, in other words, God will be faithful to uphold his word. Even when it seems like he might have forgotten it because so much time has passed and the people to whom it was originally spoken are long dead. God does not forget what he says. Nor is he ever thwarted from doing it. You know, mankind is frail. We're fickle. The word of God is utterly reliable. Now, for unbelievers, this is a solemn reminder that they will not escape the judgment which God has promised to bring upon the world. Just as Hiel, he didn't escape the curse pronounced through Joshua, even though it was so long since it was uttered. For believers, the reliability of God's word is a great comfort to us and a strength to us because it means that we can keep living by faith in the promises of God, knowing our hope will not disappoint. The last verse in the chapter tells us that Joshua's fame was in all the land. Why? Because of what the Lord had done through him in now overthrowing the city of Jericho. And next time we'll pick up the story where we left off today. So that's the story of Joshua 6. Now let me just, as we close, consider what does this mean for us today in this room now? I want to suggest that at the heart of Joshua 6 is How the Lord began the conquest of Canaan by destroying this first Canaanite city, Jericho, in a way 
that showed it was going to be according to his power, not Israel's. The main point, I think, of Joshua 6, therefore, is that the Lord, Yahweh, was with his people to give them the victory over their enemies by his power. And their part was simply to trust in him and to show their faith by obeying his commands. Now this, of course, this isn't just Joshua 6, is it? This is a common theme in the scripture. One thinks, for instance, of David's famous words to the Philistine giant named Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 45-47. He said, You come to me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. You know, that sums up Joshua 6 too. That's what Yahweh, the Lord, was trying to communicate to his people by all of this. The covenant people of God are to believe that Yahweh, the one true and living God, is with them. They're his covenant people. He's present with them like the ark was present there leading Israel's armies into battle, and they are to trust in him, to fight on their behalf, to save them from their enemies, to give them the victory. They are to know that it is the power of Almighty God, not the strength or the wisdom of men, whether it's their own strength of wisdom or perhaps the wisdom and strength of other men that will give them the victory. Oh no, it's God's power. And nothing has changed with us, has it? Now we are not his old covenant people. We are his new covenant people through our union with Jesus Christ by faith. But he operates the same way with us as he did with Israel. Of course, our battle is not against flesh and blood like Israel's was in Joshua 6 or David's was in 1 Samuel 17. Rather, our battle, as I mentioned in the beginning, is spiritual in nature. It's against a world system which has allied itself against God, against the devil and his spiritual forces. It's against our own sinful nature. But the principle remains the same. We are to recognize that Yahweh, the living God, now through the incarnate Christ and the indwelling Spirit is with us to fight on our behalf. And the victory in our spiritual warfare, will be won by his power, not the strength or wisdom of men, whether that's our own or others. Now, what effect does God intend this truth taught in Joshua 6 to have upon his people, whether it's Israel or the church? It's intended to teach us to trust in him. As Christians This means trusting the Lord to give us the victory in our spiritual warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
This is what Paul said in Ephesians 6.10. It's just the same old message. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So rather than seeking to fight sin in prayerless self-reliance, rather than adopting worldly strategies for gospel advance, rather than seeking to navigate the pressures and the influences of our society really without reference to the scriptures, we should know the Lord is with us and put our trust in him to deliver us. By crying out to him in prayer for help, by looking to his word for guidance. And and guess what? Sometimes what God said in his word might seem to make as much sense to us as marching around Jericho seven times made sense to them. But God has his purposes, and his word is perfectly wise. Now, why is all this important? Why is God so adamant that we trust in him to fight on our behalf rather than trusting in our own strength and our own wisdom? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Because he knows that otherwise, well, we'll take credit for the victory ourselves. And we'll become proud and self-reliant. You know, this is something that Paul talked about repeatedly, for instance, in his letters to the Corinthians. It was a repeated theme. For instance, 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, he said, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Or again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he said, But we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay, that's us, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Or a little later in chapter 6, verse 7, he said, But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We must learn to embrace a spirit of trust in God in our spiritual battle, which is our Christian life, so that we might not become proud and self-reliant, but learn to trust in and boast in Him alone. You know, but this doesn't mean that we are inactive, right? Okay, Lord, you got it. I'll just sit back in my lawn chair. No. In our spiritual battle against the world, the flesh, the devil, Christ does give us orders to carry out, as he did to Israel in Joshua, right? He says things like, do not love the world or the things of this world, or make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, or resist the devil and he will flee from you. And it is by obeying these commands of Christ that we show our faith and our trust in him. Indeed, If we are unwilling to obey God's commands and scriptures, we can't expect that God's going to give us the victory in our spiritual warfare any more than Israel could have expected God to give them victory over Jericho if they had said, ah, yeah, but we don't really need to do all that marching stuff. But that in no way undermines the fact that the battle belongs to the Lord and the victory is won through his power indeed. It is this, the battle belongs to the Lord, which gives us the confidence to step out in faith and obey him. 
in conclusion. I established at the beginning, the Christian life is a spiritual war against powerful enemies, the world system of men, Satan and his demons, our own sinful nature. How can we possibly emerge victorious in a war like this where we're so badly outmatched? Well, do you see? The message of Joshua 6 gives us the answer. The Lord is with us, and he will give us the victory by his power as we trust in him and follow his commands. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these texts of Scripture which speak to us simple but profoundly important messages from you, words of of life, righteous words, true words. We pray that you would help us to consume and digest these truths that we've considered this morning and that they would become blocks by which we build in our life. Help us, O God, to take these truths into our souls, to believe them and to live by them. O God, that it would keep us from both pride and self-reliance, that it would keep us from adopting empty and foolish worldly strategies to accomplish spiritual things, that it would keep us from inactivity and sluggishness, but that knowing that you are with us, that we would engage in the battle you have called us to, the fight of faith, obeying your commands, that knowing you give us the victory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.